In the early 60s, the AFL began organizing. A lot of the owners that wanted to have an NFL team were boxed out. So they got together and simply formed a new league. That exciting, crowd-pleasing brand of play that is building more and more fan support for the young and growing Continental Football League. My team, the, the Golden Aztecs, was American football in Mexico. We were taken care of down there, and oh gosh, they really missed out on a good time down there in Mexico. You'd just stay out all night and drink, and and then you'd go home and sleep, and about four in the afternoon you'd get over the stadium, and you'd just be so arrogant. So that just puts you in the mood to play. Goal to go, and that's just what Claude Watts has in mind. You know, if, uh, if you're going to look for trouble, you're going to find trouble. I don't care where you're at. And we have some guys on the team that are pretty wild, <laughs> to say the least. It finally kind of got out of hand when somebody came hollering, Mr. McCombs, come help us, come help us, come help us. And two or three of my guys had gotten half drunk, or maybe more than half, and they were jumping off and doing double dips off the balconies into the pool. It's a wonder we didn't have some broken necks. You weren't going to have any insurance, and uh, you weren't going to get paid. You were just doing it to get to go out on the field and be in a football uniform and look that way. In 1969, the Continental Football League, or COFL, welcomed the Golden Aztecs, Aztecas Dorados, into the league as the first professional American football team in Mexico. The team only played eight games and the Continental Football League folded at the end of the season. But in the wild west of professional football during the infancy of the modern NFL, the Golden Aztecs stood as a shining example of what football could be at its best and at its worst. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. It was a great season, and there's more great football in the season to come as the professional stars and talent and the crowd-pleasing roles of the Continental Football League bring a thrilling brand of play to an ever-growing army of fans. In a time before the first Super Bowl, many football leagues competed with the NFL for fans' attention. The Continental Football League started out as a merger of the United Football League and the Atlantic Coast Football League. After their inaugural season in 1965, change was the norm, with expansion teams, franchise moves, and name switches shifting the makeup of the league each season. It quickly became an international league. They actually had an international flavor to it because one of the teams was Toronto in 65. That's Dennis Kuno, a Continental Football League historian. And then in the following season in 66, the Fort Wayne team was sold to Johnny Newman of Montreal, an entrepreneur there, and he made the team the Montreal Beavers. So they had two teams from Canada by the second season already. In 1965, the COFL had eight teams. The first thing on their to-do list was expand and compete directly with the NFL in their own backyards. With rules laid by the wayside to make way for explosive growth, some franchises were less legitimate than others. The commissioner and his office didn't check the financial stability of these teams and 
they just didn't have the wherewithal to figure out something wasn't up to par. And because of that, there were a lot of things that were happening behind the scenes that were holding it back. For example, the crazy ironbound stadium that was built on the toxic dump. Kuno is referring to the Newark Bears ironbound stadium. The field was built on top of a toxic site, contaminated with dangerous levels of PCB and other chemicals left over from a plastics factory. The Bears pulled down record numbers of fans into a poison field, and no one even knew until 1987. Even the franchises breaking into established markets made sketchy stadium deals that often fell apart. And they had expanded into larger markets. Of course, the Brooklyn team, which was supposed to play in Shea Stadium, and they got boxed out of that. They ended up playing in Downing Stadium and rounding at Randall's Island. That's death sentence for any team because it was so far and difficult to get to for most of metropolitan New York. This seemed to be the fate of the COFL. Deals for venues that would guarantee ease of access and seated large numbers of fans would just fall through. Rumors circulated of the NFL threatening potential partners of the upstart league. But all that paled in comparison to arguably the most important thing for the COFL's bid to compete, TV contracts. After the first season, ABC did contact them and said, look, we're going to televise you next season. Everything was signed, sealed, and ready to go. They, in fact, had a celebration on a huge yacht in Philadelphia Harbor. And unbeknownst to the new league, the supervisor of officials, I think his last name was Bell, was an old retread from the NFL. And I think he spilled the beans to the NFL what was going on with ABC. <clears throat> so they worked behind the scenes and got a hold of ABC and said, don't go, don't, you know, go through with this contract. We'll do something for you. We'll make a combination of Hollywood and, and, and football, and we'll call it Monday Night Football. 15 seconds to air. Stand by, all cameras. Ready with slow motion and isolated cameras. Stand by, videotape. And... Well, ABC fell for it and ripped up the contra contract, I think, like uh, 12 o'clock midnight on December 31st, 1965. And that essentially was the death sentence for the new league. Good evening, everyone. I'm Howard Cook. Welcome to ABC's Monday Night Primetime National Football. The COFL was a wanted league. The NFL had put a bounty on their heads. So the startup took a page out of the outlaws from movies and television and headed out west incorporating the Texas Football League in 1969. Meanwhile, prospectors took notice of the NFL's power and wanted to strike gold with their own NFL franchise. When the announcement was made, I knew that uh, this was going to be a, a financial big deal. That's Red McCombs, former owner of the Mexico Golden Aztecs, the Minnesota Vikings, the Denver Nuggets, and the San Antonio Spurs. Because uh, they, they virtually were given a monopoly uh, without uh, the same kind of tax program that all the rest of us went with. Seeing that, I, I, I knew some of the people involved with the NFL. I immediately flew to New York the same day that I got there, and Roselle said, look, Red, uh, we, we've got our hands full, and uh, I don't see us making any big moves. Why don't you get a team in the uh, semi-pro league and see if there really is interest in Mexico that some of our people think may be there. 
because uh, we hear occasionally, but I really don't have any data that would convince me that, that there is a real market for American football in Mexico. So he said, if you would do that, I would, I'm not promising you anything, but I would certainly look favorably on uh, your wishes, whatever they may be. McCombs immediately began putting together his team. And it wasn't tough to find 40 good football players that the NFL had passed up. The leading safety man of the Continental League brings it back to the Bulldog 24. Back in 1965, uh, there was six AFL and six NFL teams, I believe. That's Leo Seitz, former Ball State college football standout and player in the Continental Football League. And then, of course, there was the Canadian Football League, but they would only allow 12 Americans on a roster. Back in those days, you had to be good, but you had to be lucky to land with an NFL team. There was as many good players out there then as there are now, but there was weren't 32 teams that they could play for, you know what I mean? There was a lot of excellent players in the Continental Football League that definitely could have played in the NFL. The small number of teams and shrunken roster sizes were definitely part of creating the pool of talent neglected by the NFL. But there were other factors, unwritten but manifest, that blocked talented players' path to the pros. Well, there, there were always rumors around that the NFL would only keep so many minority players. It wasn't part of an official policy, but the way that college football and the NFL worked in the 60s was stacked against minority players, regardless of skill. Tarkenton has ranked among the NFL's top 10 passers since his All-American days at the University of Georgia. The NFL preferred players from larger, more expensive universities and tended to be loyal to local players. Minority players who couldn't afford expensive college educations and lived in the South had an uphill battle. Lindy Lyles, who played for us, he got picked up by Miami and he was sent back. That's Fred Eckmark, former player for the Golden Aztecs and San Antonio Toros of the COFL. We said, you know, what happened, you know? Uh, you're a good player. And he said, I'm every bit as good of a player as they had on the Miami linebacking squad. But, you know, they've got guys that are married and have families they're supporting. and. Uh, They've been on the team three, four years, and it's just loyalty towards them. And unless you go down there and just overwhelm them, you're not going to catch on with a pro team. They're going to have loyalty to their own guys. The COFL had no problem taking minority players and ended up with more than the AFL, NFL, and CFL combined. But for the Golden Aztecs, there needed to be a certain kind of player. If you're going to set up a team in Mexico, it makes sense to have some Mexican players. So they held tryouts. We did have eight guys from Mexico, Monterey, and I guess from around Mexico to come out for the team. And so, you know, you go through all the drills and the calisthenics and uh, the running. And um, so we said, well, you know, this guy's pretty big and, you know, they might be pretty good. So we'll try them on for size. So the third day of practice, you start, you go into pads and so then everybody started putting their pads on and you just look so much bigger and so then you just start hitting on the lockers and popping each other and hitting each other in the head getting ready to go and they saw that and seven of them they just left they wouldn't even come out on the field and only one guy came out and uh, 
he made the team, but our first game was against Chicago, and so the first play went down on the opening kickoff, and he got knocked out cold. The games, of course, were violent, as you'd expect from an upstart league. But the practices were just as brutal. Feats of strength, speed, and machismo shaped the camps into lawless places where the only rule was to get tough enough to stand up to the opposing teams and the NFL. If anybody ran out of bounds, the game would just stop the players and everything and just go, did I see what I just saw? Somebody ran out of bounds? I mean, you just didn't go out of bounds or you're just a coward. Well, there wasn't any such thing as a concussion. You know, you just couldn't take it. The more you hit with your head, the tougher you, you got and the more you could take it. So it was hit with your head, hit with your head. And uh, the water breaks back then, you just didn't get any. You got like 10 ounces of water or Louisiana College they just brought out a big tub of crushed ice, and so everybody just reached their hands in there, their sweaty old hands and everything. You had to try and, you know, just consume as much ice as you could for your water break. That's all you got. I mean, you really have to get punished to get out there and play. You see it on TV, and you say, gosh, you know, I could have made that catch, or I could have tackled that guy. Well, maybe you could have in one or two plays, but after about three or four plays, your legs don't run anymore because you're not in shape. The team also looked for a face of the franchise, a figure that could draw on the locals as one of their own, but who was versed in American football and could ultimately win them games. They found Luz Pedraza. Red McCombs wanted to set up a franchise in Monterey, Mexico, and they asked if I would be interested in going. I said, yeah, sure, why not? You know, I wanted to see what it would be like uh, play ball in Mexico. And I was excited about it because I had never been to the uh, interior of Mexico. Pedraza was the perfect quarterback for the Aztecs. His father had been born in Mexico and worked in the United States. In college, he had dominated at Sul Ross State, just an hour north of the border. He had professional experience with the Denver Broncos before a shoulder injury had sidelined him. He even spoke Spanish. Well, I think I speak enough to, to get by, but the, the, the Spanish in the interior of Mexico is a little, it's quite a bit different from what we use here in the border. The announcer, you know, try to translate in Spanish, and uh, interviews were in Spanish, you know, with his television stations. I know one time they, they got me because I was uh, Hispanic, you know, and, and uh, some of the questions they asked, man, I didn't know. <laughs> The team was set up. The venue, a converted soccer field with a moat and barbed wire fence at the university in Monterey, was ready. All that's left was to drum up a crowd. I can create a crowd anywhere. People that were there, people that were very, very uh, animated, and they, they were screaming and hollering, and of course I was helping them because I was kind of leading the band when I wasn't jerking caps off a beer and uh, dancing with the girls on the field, or you name it. But I, I do know pretty well how to, how to put a crowd together and uh, make it sound like the greatest thing on earth. Along with the beer and the women and schmoozing the crowds, the Golden Aztecs also piggybacked on a sport that was already established in Mexico, baseball. No, we went to a baseball game once, and we were going to be introduced to the seventh inning stretch. So 
the bus came and got us, and the driver had been drinking, so he was drunk. And so the coaches said, well, not this driver. Anyway, we get to the stadium, and we're going to be introduced. So they're coming around with uh, tubs of beer. And so we said to the guy, well, you can just stay here, and you know we'll buy all your beer, and you can help us drink it. So the vendor, he liked that. And then we saw the bus driver. So we go, you want some beer? And he goes, sure. So we got him drunk, and then the coaches go, oh, my gosh, we give up. The coaches may have given up on the boys behaving themselves, but they didn't give up on the team's success. Red McCombs had convinced the league to give the Golden Aztecs five home games in and around Monterey in order to saturate the market and hopefully teach the Mexican audiences the ins and outs of American football. At the first game, 30,000 fans showed up. It looked like we were going to have a big crowd. It had about 30,000 people there that night. As I moved around through the stadium, I was asked a lot of questions. But why did they do this? Why did they do that? And I realized that the people who came to that game were principally there because of what they call the spectacular of the halftime show. Well, sure enough, the next game, we drew half that many. By the time we got to the fifth game, you know, we don't have but a handful of people there, and I think there were maybe 250 people in the stands. So I came back and uh, knew that I was not going to go back down there. The Golden Aztecs hung on for a few more road contests after their initial five games south of the border, but folded after just eight total games between preseason and the regular season. Suddenly, the players who had began to build a life in Mexico were sent to whichever COFL team claimed them. They were sad to leave. I was just recently married, and my first wife was pregnant with my son, Rodney, at the time. And uh, I was, I was kind of, in a way, glad because I... I said to myself, well, that way he'll be uh, both a Mexican citizen and an American citizen, you know. But uh, it didn't work out that way uh, because the team disbanded uh, before he was born. He was born in December. Had the year gone on for the next year or two, everybody would have been trying to uh, get on the team down there in Mexico just to be living in Mexico and doing that. It was a, it was a great spot. Mexico's a beautiful place. Uh, we just never ever felt threatened down there and uh, it, uh, like you say, good food, good people and interesting and we were well taken care of. At the end of the season, the COFL closed up shop as well, finally conceding its showdown with the NFL. The Continental Football League never officially folded, but most teams disbanded after the 69 season. Yet some squads, like the San Antonio Toros, hung on and kept playing into the 70s. Although the COFL never really had a chance to pull its pistols before the NFL stole its TV rights, they may have been closer to competing than you'd think. In 1974, the Houston Oilers took on the Toros in an exhibition game, pitting their rookies against the semi-pros. Well, we played the Houston Oilers, in 1974, it was 0-0 at halftime, and they beat. They ended up beating us. Oh, wow. Is that close? Yeah. Actually, uh, we were ahead of them. We fumbled four times in the fourth quarter. 
the Houston Oilers rookies and the people that had been injured the year before, and they only beat us 13-7 to in an exhibition game. And really, they beat us right there at the end. I threw an interception, a uh, pass in the flat, and the guy intercepted and ran back. <laughs> if I remember correctly. <laughs> they only played a handful of games in Mexico, but the Golden Aztecs left a mark. Now, Mexico has an extensive and vibrant college football league and youth program. The NFL never lost interest south of the border either, playing games in Mexico City every few years. Look at these Raider fans here in Mexico City. They came out in full force. Since 1969, there have been Mexican-born players in the NFL, like Raul Alagare and Efren Herrera, and even Hall of Famer Tom Fears, although he moved to Los Angeles at age six. But there still isn't as many players as you'd expect from a football-playing next-door neighbor. Canada's collegiate system and CFL players get their NFL shots each season. But despite Mexico's Organización Nacional Estudantil de Football Americano, which organizes competitive football from elementary school through college, it's still a rarity to see a prospect rise up from south of the border. The people that make it like in the NFL and things like that are kickers, because uh, soccer-style kicking and things like that, they're actually in their legs, got strong legs. But as far as maybe a lineman, you know, or whatever, you got to have uh, size, you know, and some ability. Skill can't be ignored for long. And just like the COFL chose undeniable talent, soon, Mexican born and raised players will start trickling in the NFL. And they can thank the Golden Aztecs in part. Los Aztecas Dorados and the COFL spread football across Mexico and presented overlooked players with a golden opportunity. These players never would have had the opportunity to play. They would have been stuck in the, the minors. But the talent is out there. They're very good football players that, that never are going to get to play in the NFL. And they may be good enough to play there. If we can draw the people, we'll get eight teams together and make it work. I guarantee you. At that time, it helped promote American football. When teams would fly in and would play, and it was competitive and, and good football, you know, a lot of people got excited about it. And now, I mean, it's real popular in Mexico. It allowed people that didn't make it or weren't invited to the NFL a chance to continue playing. And I don't care if you're in the NFL or the CFL or the Continental League, uh, you've got to love the game. I would say that the Continental League players truly, truly love the game. Special thanks for this episode of The Narrative goes out to Fred Eckmark, Leo Seitz, Red McCombs, Luz Pedraza, and Dennis Kuno. Dennis's site, BoosterClubCFL.com, provided all the Continental Football League clips you heard today, as well as information on the league. John Mosho provided additional research. If you like the podcast, subscribe and give us a rating or review so that more people get to see our work. Or better yet, tell a friend to give The Narrative a listen. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more on the Continental Football League, the Golden Aztecs, and other stories moving the world of sports, log on to SI.com. Mm -hmm.